and welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Uh, happy holidays, Patrick. It is. The holiday season is here. I seized up there. It's become such a nationally fraught uh, decision about what to say. Season's greetings. Season's greetings. Uh, end of the year. Happy, happy, happy Hanukkah. Happy New Year coming up. Uh, we had lots of snow around, and now it's all melted. In fact, you wouldn't even know. It's 50 degrees outside, and actually not kind of a nice day. Yeah, kind of sunny. It's... <laughs> We've had our winter. We're on to spring. Yep. Uh, of course, this is the Beer Vana Podcast. With me is Jeff Allworth, author of The Beer Bible from Workman Publishing, Cider Made Simple from Chronicle Books. Both great holiday gifts. Indeed. Last minute shopping. Now you know where to go. That's right. Run down to your bookstore. I encourage it. Um, he blogs at Beer Vana. He blogs and writes for All About Beer magazine. Uh, what about you? That's about it. That's that's about it. That's plenty. (laughs) (laughs) And you are Patrick Emerson, uh, professor of economics at Oregon State University, uh, and also research fellow for a couple of fine institutions, one in uh, Bonn, Germany, which I can never remember if there's a name for it. Um, Yeah, you know, actually they changed the official. I just got an email the other day. They changed the official name to something, Institute for the Study of Labor was, and now it's like, Study of Labor Institute or something like that. Oh, so. <laughs> an important change. I can't keep up. And, and also, of course, the uh, Center for Applied uh, Macroeconomic Research, the Sao Paulo School. Microeconomic Research. Micro. What did I say? Macro. Well, you've you've promoted me uh, to pro- macroeconomics. Actually, you're demoted me. Yeah. On who you ask? Internecine war. We won't get into. Uh, uh, yeah, and it's uh, winter break, so I'm I'm feeling good, not having to do anything. Excellent. Mostly. It's always a winter break for me. So that's good. <laughs> Always working hard. And of course, uh, we are now sponsored. So we got to talk about our sponsors, Jeff. Yes. You, uh, you, get, to, you get to do the Guinness today. All right. Here we go. Uh, Birvana is brought to you by Guinness. For a limited time, you can now try their unexpected brews, Guinness Antwerp and Stout and Rye Pale Ale. And by All About Beer Magazine. Since 1979, award-winning beer and brewery news, reviews, and insight in print and online. Subscribe today at allaboutbeer.com slash subscribe. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) So it's weird. (laughs) But it's nice to have sponsors. It is. Uh, Okay, so um, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, we're going to talk about wild ales. We we um, we sort of broached this a couple of weeks ago, or a couple of pods ago, um, not weeks, many weeks ago, but I think it was two pods or three pods ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is and, and we talked about lambics, the world of lambics, and now we are uh, going to talk about uh, uh, local wild ales as they're brewed outside of uh, uh, Brussels. Um, we're going to look at this whole category that we don't have a good name for, that um, we generally just call the wild ales. What are they? How are they made? What distinguishes them from each other? Um, all those wonderful things. I think it's going to be a fun show. Right. So a few, few pods back, we were all hanging around Brussels, in and around Brussels, talking about spontaneously fermented lambics. Now we're going to talk about wild ales in general, and particularly those in... North America? America? Yeah, although we are going to listen to one Italian brewer, so that'll be fun. Oh, okay. Uh, I'll have to, I had a, my my stand-in title for the pod was of North America, but I, we're going further afield, so I won't limit us. <laughs> and the fact that we haven't named it shows just how tight this production is. <laughs> uh, but we have news, so. 
we, like, we do have news yeah. and we have it written down. So, so we're going to keep our structure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on to the news and then we'll get to our main topic. Excellent. All right, so what's the first news item here? I'll let you do the first one. All right, the first one is um, there was a great report in uh, Brewbound, which is a, a website that follows the brew beer industry, and, and probably many people read that. If you don't, you might check in. They have uh, usually they they break a lot of news and they have great news. Uh, and an example of that is they this week had an article about um, how many of the gypsy breweries, and this is more common on the East Coast. Uh, had become successful enough that they were starting their own breweries. Um, gypsy brewing is the technique or the, the approach where it's sort of like contract brewing, but um, you may not brew, you don't have a contract to brew with a, another brewery. You actually go into their brewery and brew yourself. Um, but gypsy brewers find that if they survive and are successful, uh, there's some distinct advantages to uh, having a brewery. Mm -hmm. And these include having direct contact with their customers, which they can't do without a brewery. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they can make, because they can sell, if they have a tap room, out of the tap room, four to six times the amount of money on a barrel of beer, which is not incidental. Mm -hmm. um, and if they have a tap room or a brewery, a brew pub, they have an opportunity to build the brand in a way that situates in a local place. And so um, Brewbound talked about a number of different little breweries, um, many of them that, that people will have heard of uh, that are now founding their own places and I think it's a, a great example of um, the nature of craft brewing um, we do consider it a kind of the best craft breweries are ones that are located in a place and um, gypsy breweries have this great opportunity to get into the market without spending a lot of money but there's a real downside yeah these little guys have discovered well yeah that's right and that's that um, the the last podcast was recorded right before I went off and did my little talk down in Eugene. Um, and one of the big topics there was the sort of tyranny of scale, uh, which is it's great to be small and local, but it also is expensive. <laughs> yeah. And so that's the, that's the, and we were hypothesizing sort of, it was a discussion. We were talking about whether the uh, future is to have sort of big, big brewery facilities that are shared or co-owned, um, uh, so that you can sort of leverage the scale, but still have your own, uh, do your own brewing. So, yeah, interesting. Yep. This is a. I didn't think about uh, these points that you made um, that much. Uh, how much it matters to have your own tap room, for example. I wonder how much. That was sort of what Brewbound was talking about, which yeah. was why I threw it in here. So that was pretty fascinating. Huh. Okay. Uh, the next one is uh, relative to the big merger, the Sab Miller. Uh, uh, AB InBev uh, merger, uh, which is a global merger, so has to has to um, uh, appease all of the regulatory uh, agencies, um, both in Europe, the United States, and elsewhere. Um, uh, but uh, I assume <coughs> to appease the the Europeans, uh, Asahi has pur purchased uh, Pilsner Urquell and some other Eastern European breweries from SAB Miller. Uh, in other words, they're spinning them off and. Um, I read that Asahi was in was excited about these brands because apparently um, they're still drinking a lot in <laughs> a lot of beer in Eastern Europe, and the uh, Asahi Asahi's growth domestically has really um, uh, stopped. Uh, they may even be contracting slightly domestically, so looking for growth uh, opportunities, which is what we've talked a lot about in terms of the big breweries buying craft beer. Right. Yeah, I think Japan as a country is shrinking, isn't it? It's a uh, this is kind of a problem they have. They have an older 
population yes. and they're shrinking. So yeah, that's a big problem. That's hard to grow yeah. when there's fewer people selling, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I think it's fascinating because, of course, Pilsner Urquell is one of the most, uh, well, it's, it's really it's the most important um, extant brewery mm-hmm. uh, in, in the world. It's where Pilsner was, was first brewed. Mm-hmm. So it's an extraordinary asset. And if I were a billionaire, I would have bought that brewery myself. I, this is amazing. I would love to have a brewery like that. So yeah, it's kind of a crown. Saw, saw he did good. It's kind of a crown jewel, but I guess um, with the two brands, the two mega corporations together, there wasn't enough con- co- competition in Eastern Europe. There goes my headphones. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> you are. Uh, boy. You're in a frolic. Today. <laughs> it's, the, it's the holidays, you know. It's a little semi-pro <laughs> action here. Uh, <laughs> um, I was going to say, oh, yeah, and so uh, Miller Coors, something similar in the U.S., Miller Coors is going to be spun off into a separate corporation um, after this merger as well. So there'll still be sort of technically domestic competition here as well among the big guys. Right. Uh, Yeah, okay, next one. Uh, And last, we have uh, news out that Heineken has purchased 1,900 punch pubs in the U.K. uh, for half a billion dollars. Um, Punch pubs are these kind of... uh, theme pubs i don't know what you'd call them they're not the kind of pubs i wanted to go to when i was in when i visited the uk but uh, yeah i i guess I, I mean there's these big national pub companies yeah that have kind of i don't know what we'd call them gimmicky pubs sort of kate trying to cater to the young the youngsters that's yeah. how i look, view them something different than the traditional things a little more lively you know often there's I don't know, games and disco dancing and stuff or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a few of these big giant, but they're, but they're big, they're big giant retail outlets for, for beer. Uh, with the purchase, um, they combine with, uh, uh, a thousand star pubs and bars that Heineken already had to create the third largest, uh, holdings of, uh, pub operations in the UK. So that's kind of a big move that they're making into the UK. Yeah, yeah, and as pubs are largely tied houses, or at least they are largely feature the products of their owners, so that means that you have all these exclusive outlets. Totally, yeah. So you're probably gonna what is it? Is Lagunitas? Did Heineken buy half of Lagunitas? Uh, Maybe you're gonna be able to get Lagunitas IPA in these pubs in UK now. Yeah, well, there you go. Could be. So maybe there's a there's a, there's a reason to visit Punch Pubs after all. Yeah, <laughs> not for us, but if you're British. <laughs> that's right. All right. Uh, that's the news. All the news fit to print. All the news fit to speak about. Uh, so now let's uh, get back into our main topic, which is the wild ales of the world outside of Brussels, and the vicinity. And we're going to do something different today and start out with a clip before we get into the main topic. So let's do that. And let's not even set it up. Let's just play this thing. All right. Here we go. So I have a kind of like a philosophical, like, issue with the whole wild beer thing. I, I struggle with that. I, I don't know what everybody's really like pinned down exactly a good uh, parameters for what is wild. You know, a lot of people, if there's like pretenomyces or bacteria in it, then they consider it wild. But yeah. if you're getting that from a laboratory, then how wild is it? And, you know, it seems like a pretty controlled process. Getting back to philosophically, like that's something that you have to get over if you're going to try these doing these types of beers because uh, it throws all caution to the wind and can stay up losing sleep over something like this. 
So that was uh, Jason Collar at a brewery called Solera here in uh, Oregon, mm-hmm. in a little town called Parkdale. And he sets up, um, well, I think, in, in an interesting way, the kind of question of what, what are these things that are called we call wild ales. Um, when we talked about the lambics, mm-hmm. that's a really strongly prescribed process. Right. Um, the EU even now has gotten involved, and the way you make a lambic is very particular, and where you can make lambic is very particular. Right. Um, when Americans make wild ales, they make them in a whole bunch of different ways, and they make them um, out of a whole bunch of different things. And we thought it would be fun to dig into that and see all those different ways, because more and more you're seeing on the uh, grocery store shelves things that, that are labeled wild or sour or right. any kind of weird thing, and it's hard to tease them all apart. So, yeah. uh, so Jason has a very particular view, and it's not shared by everyone, but I thought we'd throw out a little provocative, provocative material right off there at the bat, or yeah. right off the bat. Um, but let's start, uh, going through kind of discussing a little bit and you can jump in here cause you know, a lot of this stuff too. Um, what, wh- like, let's talk about the first, the, the whole, the whole world that we're talking about. Um, when we talk about wild ales, we mean ale beers that use, uh, certain kinds of yeasts and bacteria. Right. Um, so that yeah, I was going to say, why don't we why don't we come up with a working definition yeah. so we can use it in the largest sense? <laughs> if you say wild, it must at least have something uh, one of these wild yeasts or bacteria right. in it. Uh, and when we say wild yeast, we typically mean uh, a strain called Brettanomyces, mm-hmm. which uh, is uh, an ancient strain that used to. Uh, in in most beer that was aged, mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to keep out of out of uh, fermented beverages, and you find it in wine and cider as well. A strain of what? Uh, yeast. yeast. Uh, uh, so it's. Uh, I don't know what the <laughs> Latin name is. No, that's right. I'm just trying to make sure that we 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 uh, are clear about what's yeast and what's bacteria. Right. So that's a yeast. Okay. That, so uh, the difference between yeast and bacteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's that's a that's a wild yeast. The standard strain of yeast that ferments beer and also makes bread right. is called Saccharomyces. Okay. And it can also be wild. Mm-hmm. So you can also find these things roaming freely out in the world. So right. there can actually be wild Saccharomyces strains. And then you have everything uh, started out wild to be. That's there. right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and then you have uh, bacteria. And the two most common that you find in beer are uh, lactobacillus and pediococcus. Mm-hmm. And the difference between um, bacteria and uh, yeast, mm-hmm. they both consume sugars, right. but bacteria consume uh, them anaerobically right. without the presence of oxygen, and right. yeast can consume them in the presence of oxygen. Mm-hmm. This is important because um, if you put a beer in barrels and you want to create, if you want to spark uh, good activity mm-hmm. that, uh, the kind of beneficial activity you want uh if those barrels have access to oxygen if they're wooden for right. example mm-hmm. then that will feed those processes right but if you got lactobacillus in there you want to have it be a non-oxygenated uh, environment okay so um so one of the ways so does that mean that oxygen actually impedes the the activity of the bacteria? It does. Okay. Uh, it impedes it. And, and it, for lactobacillus, uh, there are certain strains that are um, uh, impeded by hops, too. Mm-hmm. Not every strain. There's several strains of lactobacillus, which we're not going to get into this. Okay. Um, there's one process of making these beers that people have probably heard of called kettle souring, which is made with, it's, a, it's souring it with a bacteria, with mm-hmm. lactobacillus. 
and it can be done very quickly. You just throw a culture of lactobacillus, lactobacillus in your wort, mm-hmm. and over the course of 48 or 72 hours, it will sour that beer, drop the pH very low, and then you can ferment it with regular yeast. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to talk about that. That's like a whole different process. Um, we're going to talk about things that um, may have bacteria but always have the presence of uh, wild yeast. Okay. So that's kind of the whole um, the whole uh, overview. Uh, but so, not, so your working definition is essentially anything that has bread. Not well. Uh, <laughs> anything that has wild yeast. So there is a brewery in uh, North Carolina uh-huh. in Durham called Full Steam. And they and, use wild saccharomyces, and they're trying to cultivate wild saccharomyces. Okay, and they're they have actually cultivated tons and tons and tons of different wild saccharomyces. And okay, they mostly don't work, which is fascinating. Ah, interesting. Um, and uh, I was there last year, and they had a little saison uh, that they had made with their wild sack, and it doesn't, unlike regular um, cultivated uh, saccharomyces, which are often very vigorous, uh-huh. these wild sacks. Sometimes are just really dull and they don't, they're not very active, which uh-huh. is kind of, you'd expect them to be the opposite. We think wild is like really active. Um, but they were maybe, fine. although you think about the breeding or the selection of yeast you select on, right? You on, want vigorous. hungry, vigorous yeah. yeast. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So weed out the so they had this, uh, the this, week of the herd. We call the herd, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and they had they had one that they're working with. I don't think they're going to continue. I don't, I bet they didn't continue with it. Um, mm-hmm. It was like a little saison. It didn't ferment out super well, but it was funky. It, it tasted like a... So it was wild. It was wild, yeah. It was very... I liked it. It was very nice. Uh-huh. Okay. So you can't have those. Uh, wild, it's wild, All right. Wild saccharomyces, wild bretonomyces. Okay. Mostly people are not working with wild sack, but I think it's the future. So I think breweries are probably looking to get into that. But, okay. Um, so far, we're not. We don't have a ton of examples of that. Okay. Uh, so mostly we're talking about beers that are brewed with Brettanomyces. Yeah, mostly. Okay. All right. So uh, two or three podcasts ago, we talked about spontaneous fermentation and the fermentation of uh, uh, lambics. Right. One way Americans do this is completely traditional. Mm-hmm. They do lambic-style beers. Mm-hmm. Um, Allagash uh, is, was one of the first breweries to build their own cool ship off the back of their brewery, mm-hmm. and they dump beer in... Uh, they dump hot wort in there and let it sit overnight, and um, then put it in barrels and let it sit there for two or three years. Right. They use a turbid mash. They used aged hops. They use the whole whole thing. Um, the, uh, there's a brewery here in Oregon called Block Fifteen does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another brewery. So that's that's like the traditional way of doing spontaneous fermentation. Right. But then there's other non-traditional ways. Mm-hmm. And this is a fascinating thing that we're seeing in America. Uh, we've got a beer here that we'll try in a minute um, from Degard Brewing, right. which is in Tillamook. And uh, Degard does only spontaneously fermented beer. Right. But they use a really weird mashing regime. And uh, I was sworn by Trevor <laughs> Rogers, who told me about it, to secrecy. So I'm not going to mention uh, the process they use. But, suffice to say that it's different than the traditional. So, yeah, suffice to say it's very different. This idea of turbid mashing being so critical right. um, is a, in many ways a cultural and historical artifact. Mm-hmm. And Americans and uh, people outside of, of Belgium who want to make these kind of beers have mm-hmm. been experimenting and they've been finding that uh, it's possible to make these beers outside of Belgium, first mm-hmm. of all, and it's possible to make them uh, using techniques that the Belgians don't use. Right. And this is seems completely 
uh, predictable and <laughs> it's happening. So Degard, um, Degard uses a, a, a different process mm-hmm. to get a very fascinating result. And I think for the most part um, has the same success in terms of creating a, a positive substrate for those wild yeasts and bacteria to feast on and, right. and produce wonderful flavors over the course of months and years. Right, right. Um, I, I think uh, really we don't have to, we, since we had a whole uh, podcast on it, I think the only other interesting thing to mention there is the United States is a giant place with radically different climates. Right. And so um, the guard is in Tillamook, mm-hmm. uh, which is this little town on the seaside of, of Oregon, and they can literally ferment their beer year round because it never gets very hot and never right. gets very cold. Yeah, real but coastal you, climate. Yeah, yeah. So it's perfect <clears throat> for that kind of brewing. If you're in Texas or uh, Minnesota or Portland, Maine, you're going to have a much smaller season for mm-hmm. being able to pull this off because you need to have cool temperatures and not icy frozen temperatures. Right. Um, and I think the natural flora and fauna and fungi that you have access to are radically different. So yeah. each each one of these breweries that makes beer in these different locations is going to make a beer that tastes different. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So that's the most wild of the wild ways to make beer. Mm-hmm. Um, Jason Collar, who talked at the start, hasn't done a little bit of that. But the thing that he has done more of is uh, this next technique, which I think is super fascinating. And mm-hmm. I've never heard of a, of a Belgian doing it. Mm-hmm. But I, I first heard of it um, in Italy when I visited uh, Lover Beer. Uh-huh. <laughs> a brewery uh, in uh, Marentino, Italy, which uh-huh. is not very far. It's like 10 kilometers from Torino. Uh, and the way he does it, so it's in the, it's in the wine. Have you ever been to that part of Italy? Uh, no, I've only been to um, Tuscany. Okay. It is, well, Milan a little bit, but Tuscany, Tuscany okay. mainly. Yeah. Have you, did you drive around Milan no, at all? No. Yeah. No. Just it's, extraordinarily gorgeous country there yeah i could not believe how amazing i would love to yeah it's really great um and it's all covered with with uh grapes everywhere you drive is grapes it's rolling hills just amazing um and uh walter uh i think is how you pronounce his name even though he's italian um it's l-o-v-e-r-i-e-r and uh that's where the word lover beer comes from yeah, I was going to say I would, I would drink the beer just because of the name. Uh, but now I realize it was not just, it's actually come from, from his name. I would, if I was French, I would pronounce it Louvier. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not, I mean, but he's Italian, so who knows? Uh, yeah, I know. Um, he had, he, he was watching the local winemakers and uh, he realized that you can spark spontaneous fermentations from the yeast on the fruit. And he thought, why not dump that into wort? And spark of fermentation that way i'll just add a pitch with fruit okay so wait a minute it's just it's fresh fruit it's fresh fruit that he's they just throws right into the wort to to introduce the yeast that are currently on the fruit or to attract yeast no that are currently on the fruit Ah, yeah it's a fascinating thing and that's what jason collar uh at uh solera does a lot of and he's right there for people who know oregon parkdale is in the in the really it's in the fruit district right and, and near so, hood river near hood river yeah and there's a lot of fruit trees there tons of fruit trees yeah he, he figured out the same thing independently i'm pretty certain he never heard of uh, lover beer which is a tiny <laughs> so, so the two of them discovered the same technique get the same in the same era essentially that's right they just they worlds were worlds apart they were just thinking of it and thinking you know these things ferment on their own you don't have to do anything right cider and and wine will just ferment if you have juice so why not just 
pitch our, our beer with fruit. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. So we ha- actually have a, a little bit of uh, audio here from, from Walter, uh, which we can listen to him talk about. <laughs> yes. We can listen to him <laughs> from talk Lover about Beer Man. Lover Beer. All right. <laughs> now you do some spontaneous fermentation. Yes, we have only one beer. It's spontaneous. Okay. We started from the yeast on the skin uh, of the, of the, the grapes. grapes. Yeah, yeah. Beer bear. That's that's a great idea. For other, we have, uh, for example, uh, Belgian ale, uh, standard. Okay. But we we use uh, in fermentation the wood after we see. Yes. Um, uh, the wood and the wood survivor in the, in the one centimeter. Of wood, yeah. so the, the the wildest from yes. the the spontaneous of Birpera and conditioned the, the the fermentation of other product. I see. Okay. Yeah. So um, just to clarify, what he was saying there at the end is he took that first batch that he had spontaneously fermented by fruit right. and dumped it into his fooder, his, his large wine barrel, uh-huh. and inoculated his wine wine barrel with these wild Oh, I see. Wild yeast. So now the resident in the barrel itself. Exactly. Uh, okay. So now he has this native culture that comes from the Piedmont area, has Piedmont grape wild yeasts. Mm-hmm. And, and when he puts a lot of his beer through that fooder, so it picks that wildness up. Oh, okay. And so that's now how he introduces it, just through the fooder. He still makes that, uh, or at least when I visited him, he was still making the spontaneously fermented beer, but uh-huh. his other products will go through the fooder and pick up the character from that. I see, I see. Okay. I know yeah. I get it. Yeah. It's a very cool way to uh, introduce wild yeast. I think maybe, I don't actually know if it's safer. It seems safer somehow. You pitch pitch fruit instead of just letting it sit out there and hoping for the best. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it seems like a more controlled process. Yeah, um, it may just, not be, but I it yeah, seems I know. Like it. But you're not waiting for the for the yeast to sort of arrive on, among other microorganisms that might show up, right? Uh, you're hopefully just just introducing the ones that are sitting on the fruit, which are the ones you want. Uh, but that's interesting. It's clever. It is. There's there is um, a category of yeast called apiculate yeasts. I learned about this when I was writing my book on cider, which are the first. They're kind of like Saccharomyces, but not exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, they are the first things to spark a fermentation. Uh, in the the cider and I think also in in wine and they get the the alcohol content up to like one or two percent pretty quick and that kills a lot of bad uh, spoilage microorganisms right so I think I don't know if apiculate yeasts are as present in lambics you don't really read about them in lambics so much but Mm -hmm. if I were to make an argument for why it seems safer I'd go that'd be the card I'd play okay yeah (laughs) sounds smart I know and as a writer that's mainly what I try to do it's not embarrass myself I just throw wild theories out there and hope for the best that's a hypothesis apiculate yeast see I I I show them the shiny word and then exactly pretend that what you're saying is smart you're dazzled by by terminology that's that's it that's an academics trick that you've picked up there ah. <laughs> well as a failed academic i might have picked it up with, uh, earlier on when i'm in a bad mood that's what i consider a lot of other fellow disciplines is just a whole bunch of terminology designed to <laughs> to keep everyone else from uh understanding the fact that they're not talking about anything at all uh it's time to do our shout out to the sponsors jeff ah excellent uh, well let's do that because we like our sponsors so well yeah uh I gotta find my script. 
<laughs> it's right here. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, sponsor. This yeah. is the quality that you you wanted to back, and uh, that's what you get. Why not here? Why not take a break from the pod and go find yourself a Guinness? <laughs> Aren't you getting thirsty? <laughs> they they could have let us do that, but instead they had us read this. I yeah. wonder why. Okay. All right, here we go. Uh, Bivana is brought to you by Guinness. With the, help, uh, with the help of nitrogen, the thick, creamy head that you're used to seeing from Guinness can now be found on the new Guinness Nitro IPA. And, you know, I still haven't... I keep meaning to go out and get myself a Nitro IPA and an American Blonde and an Antwerpen Stout and a... Rye Pale? Rye Pale. I haven't seen those last two, but I have seen the first two. So, Well, read yours, and I'll, I'm going to tell you something about that Nitro IPA. Okay, sweet. Uh, uh, we're also sponsored by All About Beer magazine. Since 1979, award-winning beer and brewery news, reviews, and insight in print and online. Subscribe today at allaboutbeer.com slash subscribe. And if you do, of course, you get to read Jeff's. Glorious. Uh, I was trying to think of the right adjective. <laughs> I, I know. And that's exactly why I jumped in there when I did. <laughs> Glorious prose. Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, I have bad news, Jeff. The, the, <laughs> the tree trimmers have just parked right out in front of your house uh, with the big uh, thing, so we better hurry up. <laughs> I, I did hear that, the, a pipe falling in the cement. Thought, hmm. Well, when they, when they fire up the wood chipper, that's yeah, going uh, to be a big fun. Be great. Anyway, quickly, uh, you'll, IPA. you'll like that nitro IPA. I think it's a fairly English type of Ooh, uh, more yum. English than uh, American. So it's, I think it's got East Canada. Uh, golden hops and um, it's a little more malty and so yeah that's good because I love American IPAs and I especially love these modern American IPAs but they've kind of crowded out almost any other yeah particularly particularly traditional English IPAs we can still get like I really love the um, the twisted thistle from Bellhaven but it often often doesn't travel well so right all right I'm gonna try it and my next time I'm gonna have a have an opinion Excellent. Yeah, <laughs> okay. we should we should make that a priority. Yeah. Oh, it's time to drink some beer. Let's try and let's let's drink some beer while we're uh, uh, talking waiting, about waiting the, for the wood chipper. Yeah, <laughs> gotta beat the wood chipper. Uh, yeah, we're gonna talk a little bit about other ways to make um, wild ales, but I've got a beer here called the Purple, uh, which comes from Degard, uh, made with black and red raspberries. Um, uh, so I uh, think I'm gonna like this already. I got this when I visited the brewery this summer, and uh, aged in oak wine by wine barrels. It says, "Yep, uh, they mostly have larger vessels, but this may have been in their wine barrels. I shouldn't say mostly; they have a lot of different size barrels." Mm. Whoa, that's aromatic! Even before I pour it. Uh, whoa! Uh, I see why it got its name. Good audio part. Oh my gosh, that is. Um, purple. <laughs> Look at that head. That is crazy. So what we're... Holy moly. What we're... Let's see. Let's try to describe this. It has a sort of... It's <laughs> it's purple. It's red and reddish purple. Uh, the, and it, the head is just crazy. I've never seen a head that color before. The head picks up the color of the beer strongly. And so the head, it's... You know, it's a mixture of the purple and the white from the uh, the, air, the the light that comes through the bubbles, and so it's kind of like a pinkish, purplish head. Yeah, it's it's something else. Look like ice cream or something. Ooh, yeah. My gosh, the berry! It's the aroma of berry is amazing. Oh, it really is. It smells like fresh berries. It smells like fresh berries. 
It doesn't smell very sour yet. Wait for it. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, wow, the 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 aroma makes you think it's going to be super sweet. Yeah, it does because it's really very uh, on the nose, but. But there's no there's no residual sugar left at all. It's no, incredibly tart. It is incredibly tart, and I think a lot of that must come from the the fruit itself. It seems like it's got a that a, the fruity kind of tartness, which I don't uh, what is Tannic. it like malic acids or citric acids or some other kind of acids. I'm an economist, man. Well, if it were in a They're apple, tart. we would we would know it was malic, and if it were in citrus fruit, it'd be citrus. So I don't know. Berry acid? I don't know. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. Uh, yeah, that is the kind of beer. Uh, this is a, exactly the kind of beer I would. I I wish I had or on hand mm. when when people said they don't like sour beers or they don't like beer. This tastes so unlike other any other kind of beer. Yeah, and um, it is very sour in in its uh, like the pH and the. Yeah, I was going to say it's a very neutral sourness. I mean, there's not a lot of esters or other flavors there. It's just very much a a dried out berry beer. Yeah, and I think um, it's an it's it's an assertive sourness, but it's very uh, familiar. Mm-hmm. It tastes like fruit sourness, so it's not funky or weird or anything. And I can see people not liking it, but I can't see anybody finding it weird or being objectionable if anything if i think if anything someone would would uh give a big sniff of this beer and get really excited that they're going to just have this sweet berry blast and then you drink it and you're almost disappointed that it's so dry (laughs) there's no there's no sugar reward to your yeah this is a. but i like it because i you know use berries and it often becomes too sweet and cloying and Mm -hmm. Mm, so you get the you get the uh, aroma and flavor without the the sort of sick, sickly sweet yeah. that sometimes comes with fruit beers. Impressive. Yeah, definitely. Good job, guys. All right. Well, why will you continue to sip on this? Um, <laughs> we're, uh, I think we're really in the holiday mood these days. We're <laughs> We're just we're just sitting here pondering over the, the beer and the the guy's about to cut down a tree. <laughs> it's true. Well, you know, you're out of. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, no, I'm in full vacation mode. That's my point. You normally I'm like stressed. I'm running over to your house. Okay, let's get let's do the podcast. Come on. And I've signed a contract that I can't talk about yet, but um, we'll be able to the next time. I'm I'm feeling loose and free too. So it's it's good times. All right. Um, all right. Let's move on to the next way. American brewers inoculate their worts. Yes, let's do. Uh, this one, so <laughs> it's funny. We've been talking about Solera Brewery. This next process is uh, often called the Solera process, and it's actually the process that Jason Collar was using as a home brewer and gave him the idea for his, his brewery's name. Uh-huh. But the brewery that is much more famous for using this system is New Belgium. Okay. And the way this works is you inoculate a, uh, a, a barrel, mm-hmm. uh in the way, much the way that uh, uh, Walter, Walter, 
Oh, Louvrier. Thank you. Uh, does uh, d has done with his fooder, but instead of just passing beer through it so it can pick up the thing, uh -huh. you keep an active culture in there, and you'll okay. take you'll draw some of the beer off, but leave some of the beer in there, right. and then you'll put either fresh wort or fresh beer back in to fill all the way back up. Okay, and it's a way of quickly. You can um, you can repopulate your wild beer much more quickly that way. You don't have to wait for hour, for uh, uh, months or years. Mm -hmm. um, you, well, you probably have to wait for months, but you don't have to wait for months. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it quite quickly. And this is what uh, New Belgium does. And if anybody has seen photos of their barrel room, it's become insane. It's really really impressive. They mm -hmm. have uh, just tons of these fooders right. and they've, they've grown like spores all over their barrel room mm -hmm. and they each have numbers. And when they make their different types of, uh, beer like La Folie and others from their barrel aging program, mm -hmm. they go through and create a mother blend out of the different fooders mm -hmm. and take just as much as they need to make that mother blend. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be beer left in the, the fooders and right. they fill that back up and you they don't have, it. yeah, they don't have to wait forever. And then they can, they can use these as sort of a, a palette mm -hmm. to compose different beers and the flavors within each barrel are quite different but they know that by blending them together they can reliably put together new flavors which is it's a way of using wild yeasts uh, with some measure of control mm -hmm. because it will continue to reproduce each barrel will continue to reproduce the flavors uh, that are typical for that barrel mm -hmm. so you at least have it's wild totally wild and you can't create a barrel to taste in a particular way right but but once you have it, you kind of know what it's going to give you. Right. Oh, okay. That's that's cool. Yeah, that's a way, cool. I suppose, especially for like someone like New Belgium, that's a way that you can sort of control the process year after year much more um, or have much better control or, through the years. Right. Huh. Yeah, I think that's right, especially when you're trying to release beers that taste like, like when you release their La Folie, um Well, yeah. that's what I mean. They want, they want La Folie 12 to taste pretty close to La Folie 11 and right. 10 and yeah <clears throat> so if you're re if you're redoing it from scratch each time then you're going to get potentially a much different I mean you can blend it blend it to something that's familiar but right anyway so we have a clip here from uh, Peter Buchart who is the uh, uh, master brewer there at, at New Belgium and who was not incidentally I think rather uh, importantly uh, a brewer at Rodenbach mm -hmm. before he came to the United States um, so when he built the fooder program there, he was doing it from the base of quite a bit of information about how fooders should be put together. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, the audio I have is quite terrible. However, yeah. um, he describes the process of building up his fooder program. And um, let I think we should subject the listener to this terrible audio just because it's Peter Buchart and he's talking about this really important process he went through. And that's okay because I've turned the volume up to eleven. So. <laughs> okay, <laughs> here we go. If their if their eyes aren't bleeding, we're not doing our job. <laughs> So he, you heard him talking there again about um, not having control over any particular fooder, but having mm -hmm. uh, 
in the in the extended con, uh, conversation, he talked about how uh, in their blending program they're able to use those different flavors, even from um, fooders that don't make what we would typically call pleasant beer. Right. Um, you can use them to shade flavors, and it, it creates a lot of complexity in these beers. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. I think it's a. Actually, it's a really clever way. If I had a commercial brewery, I'd consider having at least part a Solera project, just so I would always have um, certain blends that I could call on if I needed them. Yeah, I never. I'll just as a sort of parenthetical, I'll say I never really understood or appreciated blending until I actually went to someone who's doing a barrel age program and and. Uh, seeing this the amazing number of barrels that they have to use to blend and all the different flavor profiles that they've identified in each one and then and then the art is coming up with sort of if i put a little of this in and put a little of that in and then i really became much more impressed and and um and it, uh and in an odd way it actually got me thinking about um uh single malt scotch because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh you know we, we we keep prizing we prize single malt scotch um, but a lot of Scots even will sort of uh, poo-poo single malts and say, you know, why would you want a single malt when you can blend and create the exact flavor you're looking for? And so um, I always, the, bear, the beer blending always makes me think about whiskey as well. Since And, and now I'm much more appreciative of blended whiskey. <laughs> Interesting. Well, yeah, you'll have to tell me about that blended whiskey. I haven't found a good one that i like so i'm sure you you that these are your people so you you have some sense <laughs> well no i really like single malts as well it's just that blended always used to see, be a pejorative you know for the the snobby single malt folks and now i think of blending as much more it can be much different right it can be very yeah very uh much an art form in itself interesting yeah I, I, we'll have to hear more about that anyway back to beer yeah back to beer <laughs> that's in our other podcast <laughs> <laughs> The single, yeah, single malts in there. Anyway. Uh, there's only one um, final uh, way, really, that I've highlighted here. There's, of course, different uh, hodgepodges that you can do different parts of each technique. Mm-hmm. The last one is the most common by far, and mm-hmm. that is pitching. Uh, notice my... my uh, Pitching in air quotes, wild. Okay, pitching wild, exactly. So many uh, yeast banks have cultivated or captured uh, wild strains, strains, which are are used to repitch and and compose flavors. Right. Uh, And this is um, when Jason at the start talked about, is this wild brewing? Mm Mm-hmm. It's it's probably uh, a philosophical difference here. It's not actually wild brewing, but it is it is using wild yeast to create flavors right. um, that are uh, impossible without wild yeasts yeah. and, and bacteria. Um, and I think we have one of these beers here. I'm not totally sure. I, ha- I have a uh, uh, Jolly Pumpkin um, Beer de Mars, uh, which is so Jolly Pumpkin is one of the older uh, wild ale breweries in uh-huh. the United States. Yep. And um, they're from they're from Dexter, Michigan. Dexter, Michigan. Which I don't know where Dexter is. I don't know either. Someone will have to let us know. Um but um Ron Jeffries has been dabbling with wild yeast for a long time and he mm-hmm. kind of fiddles with wild yeast in all his beers as uh or many of his beers. Um so I thought it would be nice for us to try one of these. I have not had this beer. Uh, it's funny because on the label it says uh, Flanders-style sour ale, but it's called a Beer de Mars. And I think what he's suggesting here is French Flanders, um, mm. not Belgian Flanders. So he's pointing to the Nord-Pas-de-Calais area where they once made 
uh, wild saisonny style beers. Mm-hmm. Um, so beer to Mars, I think, refers to that. Mars here means March, so it would have been a, a March release, something that would age over the winter. Be uh-huh. released in, the, uh, in March here, I'll let you open that. Okay. So that that's would, my that guess. I'd be happy to do so. Had it if I had it. Oh, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> I've just pontificated about what I'm gonna, what I think we're gonna find in here. So it'll be there interesting to see if I'm right. still knock ourselves out with these uh, yeah. mics. There we go. I don't get much fizzing noise, sorry. Well, okay. Is that what you expected? Yeah, that looks pretty good. I mean, the old the old uh, French, French Flanders beers would have been uh, amber, and that's a definite amber beer. Yep. Uh, they prized <laughs> long sure. boils to uh, create melanoidins and... Uh, uh, Maillard reactions, so that looks great. It's not super effervescent. It's sort of mildly effervescent. It has a light head. Yep. Um, These would have been, many would have been low effervescence, like a stock, like an English stock ale. These probably had a lot in common with English stock ales, actually. Hmm. I don't know if this does, but it definitely has a wild profile. Yes. Um, Mm, it's quite nice. It's uh, it does have quite a bit of caramel in the back the back note there. When you swallow, mm-hmm. you get you get the bread up front, and then you swallow, and it's a nice warming kind of sweeter caramel note, which is fascinating. Caramel and Brettanomyces often don't go very well together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get that caramel note as you swallow, and then you get a really tangy after. Uh, I don't want to call it aftertaste, but you get a real snap on the back of your tongue, a real um, sharp bite. Mm. I really like that beer. Mm. Brettanomyces is can express itself in a lot of different mm. ways, and um, it can either be uh, gentle and fruity, or dry and sometimes harsh, uh, almost bitter, mm-hmm. rind-like, um, and. It's funny, this beer has a ton of Brettanomyces in the nose, yep. but it's not actually super bready. Uh, it doesn't seem like... No, it's not really funky on the tongue. It's kind of got a three-stage, it's like a three-stage taste sensation for me. It's like every, each tip, and I go through three stages, which is the sort of the brett at first, and then the caramely malty kind of soothingness, and then a little snap on the back of the tongue. Yeah. Mm. That's exactly right. Oh, that's really nice. That's a good one. Yeah, absolutely. These beers uh, are, of course, extremely hard to make, even if you're pitching wild cultures mm-hmm. uh, and controlling everything else. And I think a lot of us have had a bunch of bad beers that have bread in them. And I've gotten gun shy. When I see a beer that's got bread in it, I, I sometimes, and I love I love wild beers. They're among my favorite beers in the world. But, man, if you've had one of these that tastes kind of like gasoline or uh, nail polish remover, they can produce a lot of nasty things. And... Um, Breweries should never release those, but they do because they're expensive to make. Yeah, and then there's also the process that continues in the bottle, right? So That's right. If you even if you release it and you think it's great, it sits on a store shelf for a few more weeks or another month or two, and then all of a sudden it's an entirely different beer. That's true. And breweries should have a handle on what that process looks like, but they don't always. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's so, a part of the maturing process. I think it's true, and and it depends on how that how that bottle if that bottle's in a cooler. 
for two months, it's going to be different than if it's sitting on a 75 degree shelf. Yeah, so. I meant the brewer and the brewery's maturing process. By the way, I'm like oh. I know, the, I know the beer is maturing, but I mean, <laughs> you become a more mature brewer and a brewery as you deal with these things over the years. And yeah, yeah. that's true. Uh, so um, that more or less wraps up my my uh, comment here. Uh, uh, my comments on these kind of beers. Um, when you're when you when you're using wild yeast and bacteria, you tend to compose them um, in different ways. So if you're and there, you have a lot of different opportunities, you can pitch um, only Brett at the start. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can pr- pitch uh, Saccharomyces at the start, make a beer, and then pr- pitch Brett. Um, mm-hmm. You could you you can use bacteria in there. There are a lot of different ways to do it. And the last clip we have, we have one more last clip, mm-hmm. comes from uh, Hill Farmstead, where I visited over Thanksgiving, uh, a brewery that uses the mixed legendary, the Hill, legendary, the legendary Hill Farmstead. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I drove up there on a snowy day and uh-huh. uh, it was quite picturesque and nice. And one of the reasons I wanted to go is because an old friend of ours from Portland, mm-hmm. uh, Vasily Gletzos. Um, who was here for uh, maybe a decade brewing was there and he was able to show me around. And uh, we, so the clip we have is from Vasily talking about the uh, fermentation program. All right, let's listen. So, uh, yeah, I mean, basically uh, it's, uh, we have a couple, couple proprietary Brett strains that we've, we've gotten from uh, our friends who, who propagate different strains. Uh, and yeah, and we basically keep that culture going in all our in all our fermenters. Okay. Um, sometimes we'll mix we'll mix a blend one way or another. We have like often a string of beers that have uh, have a couple different Brett strains added to it, but it's usually more or less the same kind of base culture. So you'll do a primary with something, and then you'll secondary with no altogether. altogether. It's, a, it's all mixed fermentation. Okay, yeah. so you start you start that way. Yeah, yeah. This is basically everything. Everything's covered in bread in this room. So. Okay, but you also have sack in there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And when you are working with these pitched wild cultures, wild and uh, quotation marks again, right? Um, one way that you can uh, create another palate is to get different strains of these these wild yeasts. And and uh, uh, Hill Farmstead didn't say where they got theirs but there are breweries that are able to uh capture their own brett and right. allagash is a great example hmm. they had their when, when they were doing their spontaneous program uh, and actually before it was the thing that encouraged them uh they got an infection in the brewery uh-huh. and they gave it to either y yeast or white labs and said what is this and they said it's a brett strain but it's not one we've seen it's probably endemic to your region right and it's a really good breath strain. It's very sweet and fruity. It's an absolutely magnificent breath strain. And now they have, they got that plated, so they mm-hmm. they can they can produce it whenever they want. And they pitch that into other beers that they make, and it's the Allagash bread. And it's just really a uh, wonderful breath strain. So nobody else can make uh, the 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 kind of flavors that they get that way. That's uh, cool. And we're seeing more and more of these different just kinds. Local as you get. Yeah, it's very <laughs> cool. So, so I hope to see local. S- Sacks come on and local brets and mm-hmm. uh, maybe even different kinds of lactobacilluses and all these things. This is a really cool time to to be into wild ales because we're starting to see a lot of different processes and ingredients that are coming online that are that yeah. are creating flavors that are unexpected and, and lovely. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. And that is all I have to say. On that. <laughs> you, you, yeah. You have any 
pithy uh, or even you know half-assed comments uh, from the economic side. Do you mean my normal my normal <laughs> contribution to the fund? <laughs> we'll let the reader decide or the listener decide. Uh, well, the the one thing that I had uh, was thinking about, and this also um, I was thinking about this um, because at the end of my talk uh, in Eugene, um, I was chatting with Matt Benwick of Alesong. He used to be. Uh, at Oakshire, right. um, but he started his own barrel-aged, uh, exclusively barrel-aged brewery, um, and we were discussing the same kinds of things, which is, you know, barrel-aging is incredibly expensive. Um, this is about <laughs> the most expensive way that you're going to brew beer, and so we were talking about whether the customers are um, understand the amount of time and effort and work that goes into producing a beer and willing to and willing to pay for that experience. Mm-hmm. So basically, how much do they care? Uh, well, I'm, I'm using economist terms, sort of the marginal contribution of uh, you know of the sour ale over the sort of typical <laughs> the typical beer you can buy for um, you know six bucks a six pack or eight bucks a six pack, whatever it is, uh, because um, it's it's time consuming and it's hard, and uh, so it, it it'll be interesting to see how much the market for these beers grows um, if it's the same kind of, you know, if there'll be the same sort of appetite for these beers at the higher price point. Um, yeah. I think whether it's going to remain a super niche market or whether it'll become more mainstream. Absolutely. That seems like a great question. Yeah. Um, and he didn't know the answer. He right. Was, uh, His beers are priced at pretty steep per bottle prices. I bought, I actually... When I went to Hill Farmstead, I bought picked up a bottle of his to take mm-hmm. to Vasily because uh, he's come online since Vasily's le- uh, left for Vermont. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, they're they're like a bottle of wine, you know. 15, yeah, I think he bucks. I think he bottles in the Champagne Magnums. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And then they're about twenty bucks. I think yeah, yeah so like between fifteen and twenty, depending on the bottle you're buying. Yeah, for a bottle of beer, that's really expensive. For a bottle of wine, it's you know. I, I would love to buy a bottle of Oregon Pinot for 15 bucks. Yeah, I guess that's part of it. Like, So do you think of these as just beer, like any other beer with a sort of funky flavor? Or do you think of it as something special and unique and um, hopefully the latter? Because I think that's what's going to promote and, uh, and promulgate the, um, the wild, however you want to define it, but we'll call, we'll call them all wild, wild ales. Yeah, no, uh, I love them. I think they're super interesting because they're entirely different flavors than you get. <clears throat> I think many consumers probably have my approach, my attitude, which is I would happily pay twenty dollars if I knew it was going to be sublime, but I don't want to buy. I don't want to buy a twenty dollar bottle of beer that's gross that yeah. tastes like gasoline. Yeah. So um, we're gonna. I think the market will sort that out. Yes. Yeah, and I think that the the consumers will become more sophisticated too, um, and. How do I put this? The the removal from the mar- market of the mar- more marginal uh, producers will help right. uh, when you start when sort of the market starts sorting this stuff out, and most of the beer that you see there is high quality beer. But you know you have the same you you're always going to have the same problem I think that you have in in wine, which is it's very hard to know. Uh, I've talked about this a lot of times, experience goods, so you don't know how much you're going to like it until you actually buy it. Wine is a difficult, you know, as a consumer, it's hard to be a consumer, a good consumer of wine, so you often rely on good wine. Well, that's what I do. I go to my local wine shop, which Mm -hmm. has shown to be quite reliable and quite a good uh, sorter for me. So the wines on their shelves are generally quite good, and they can point me in the right direction if I tell them what I want. So... um, uh, 
I think that's sort of with these beers too. Um, yeah. You have that same kind of experience. So it's a little bit more complicated for a customer. But Brewers like uh, Matt are betting that his brand, Ale Song, is going to be one that is the mark of quality. And people will see that and they're like, he makes good beer. I'll, I'll pay for it. So mm-hmm. he's going to have to not release bad beer. Um, he's going to have to make sure that his, his uh, blends are really top notch and um, that will help build his brand. I think he might be in an advantage uh, and, and breweries like Degard have an advantage in that, that these are the only beers they make. They're not one-offs. So right. customers may have more confidence in them. Yeah. Yeah. But I do, I think, and I think that's going to be true in craft beer in general is it's going to be really important to establish yourself as a, a reliable brand. Right. Um, that, that it's not just the beer you're shopping for, but it's the, it's, it's, it's the brewer that you trust and sort of whatever they put out, you're willing to give a chance to. Yeah. At all price points. Right. So mm-hmm. if, if you're buying exactly. uh, uh, an inexpensive, uh, 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 IPA or, or you know a lager or a more expensive uh, bottle a barrel aged stout which is the next price up or one of these beers yeah you're gonna want that to be really good for its price point and it makes it complicated for brewers and we have talked about this a number of times I'm getting a little off track here but just that if you produce too many beers and across a huge range of styles that you risk you know some people are gonna like some of your beers and other people like other your be- other beers mm-hmm. but might mo- but might not like. Uh, some of them and so you risk sort of uh, diluting the brand in, mm-hmm. in a weird yeah, way it's right? a, it's really interesting you're right because a brewery like the Gard or Ale Song doesn't have that problem because right. they're making one kind of beer but if you're a, a, you know a Breakside or most most of these breweries have these different programs going mm-hmm. on yeah it's interesting yeah all, all, all fascinating things to watch as as we see the, the industry continue to mature yeah all right so Onto the very fat mailbag. Yay! I think it's the first time we've had more than one. <laughs> Certainly, the first time we've had four. It's true, and I, I threw everything in here. Um, uh, these are not all major questions. Some of them are just kind of comments, but mm-hmm. I'm throwing them in there because, by God, we got a full mailbag. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, so I don't know if you want to. We, sure, we never I'll, had more than one, so go for it. I'll get started. So right. uh, the first one is from Mason Astley from Boston, uh, who writes. A question, maybe an idea for the show. What are the generations of hoppy beers as you see them? New England IPA is the latest in an evolving leadership of the available uh, leading edge of hoppy beer. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I think that makes, maybe it's supposed to be beers. I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, darn. I thought, I thought he invented a new plural. It could be. Yeah. Right. Like Fora? Yeah. yeah. Uh, 22 years ago, I thought Harpoon IPA was hoppy. Uh, it's not anymore. What are the stages between, say, Sierra Nevada and now? We should do an entire show on this. Yeah. We should not try to answer this now because this is an hour long discussion. No, no, this is good though, but it would it be a fun project absolutely. to try to identify the generations of hop, hoppy beers. Absolutely. All I right, think we're about gonna this do all it. the time. We're going to do this. That, on, that's got, that'll be fun. Yeah, we're on it, Mason. And we'll have to, yeah, we'll see if we can get a, get uh, some examples. This will be a good one. We'll have to do this where, where I don't actually have to drive home afterwards. <laughs> we can have a few. <laughs> 13 beers. Yeah, 13 beers. We can go through the whole. So. Uh, all right. Uh, so uh, thanks, Mason. We'll, we'll get on it. That'll be a future pod. Excellent. So the next one is a long one. And I'm just going to condense it. Uh, it comes from Ted McIntyre. Uh, these are the, the next. Uh, we have two people here. We don't know where they come from. They come from the Internet. Mm. Uh, Ted uh, says, I'll, I'll, I'll read the setup. Once again, as I was planning a trip to visit some breweries, I ran across a problem that you probably don't know the answer to. But I am hoping. Ha. Well, 
we'll yeah, see just about wait. that. <laughs> uh, but I'm hoping that maybe by mentioning it on the podcast and blog, it can be fixed. Why is it so hard to find the taproom hours? Uh, more often than not, it is only a click away to either taproom or about us tab link. But sometimes you have to look at their Facebook page and on and on and on to find it. And you still don't find it. And he's wondering what's going on here. And I got to say, absolutely, Ted, I'm totally with you. This really irritates me. Yeah. I have this problem all the time. Yeah, that's because brewers are... <laughs> <laughs> but but people if you're more than a than a two-man operation you, sh- you should have a marketing department that's keeping these things up to date you should have somebody who's built your website that this stuff is easy to find i mean i i i just i i hear your your plaintive call ted and i want to send out to the world uh my endorsement get on your websites and put accurate date dates and times that you're open on there yeah it is the 21st century people do use the interwebs <laughs> to find out information and that kind of basic stuff should be really easy to find it yeah. should be like the first thing where we are and when we're open right uh yeah i i absolutely agree and i um uh, the charitable uh explanation i suppose is that brewers are really focused on making kick-ass beer and those other details are just things like that get in the way and so they're really hyper focused on that and not so much on the, the other details but as we mentioned these are not de- these are details that are not particularly hard and are kind of one-off right you put your hours down you're done i know that there are a few brewers who sort of almost begrudgingly open a tap room because like well yeah that's sort of what it's expected and but i think now it's become pretty well recognized that it's it can be a nice little profit center yeah um so tap rooms are pretty important i think they're pretty important ways to to build a relationship with your customers and so they shouldn't just be afterthoughts uh, maybe they're less so now but for a while i really felt like the tap room was just like oh yeah here you go a couple of taps and you can have our beer if you want um i really think that there are ways to um to really highlight your beer and to have a relationship with your customers and so you better treat them right and the first thing to do is to make sure they know where you are and when you're open absolutely so yeah way to go ted thanks for that um i whole wholeheartedly endorse it all, all right, right. Uh, john from Cl- oh claim 52 yeah so uh just quick i did a, a talk down in eugene i've mentioned it a couple times in this pod uh it was the talk series is sponsored by claim 52 brewery in in uh in eugene the space that's used for the talk is this cool shared space in an old church and part of it is called the abbey which is a little claim 52 pub very cool. And I had uh, a Claim 52 beer. It was their Pilsner. I'm not. I'm hesitating because I'm not sure if it has a special name. I think it was just called Pilsner. Um, a Claim 52 Pilsner. Very good. Uh, cheers, uh, John. But John from Claim 52 says, after thanking us for the shout... Uh, uh, oh, he thanks us for the shout out for Fluffy uh, and adds... Another beer we liked. The Fluffy is an IPA. Um, the Fluffy was not... was just about to come on uh, they were finishing the last of the IPA, and so I actually had a taster of the Fluffy, so I can attest to its goodness, but I didn't have a whole, a whole glass. Uh, as a 20-something uh, craft beer drinker, I have to say I have the utmost respect for Sierra Nevada Pale Ale and truly regard it as an icon and will order it often. You remember what this is a ref- reference to? Uh, no. Yeah. Your, your old brain. You're younger than me, but your brain is in, in some <laughs> is ways uh, as bad as mine. I mean, um, I remember. We've talked about Sierra Nevada all the time, so I don't know the specific reference. What we were talking about was um, whether a brewery like uh, Sierra Nevada, which we think of as this amazing, important brewery that's super high quality, mm-hmm. uh, is 
seen that way by 20-somethings where they look at it like, uh, you know, it's kind of mass market. Uh, and it's my dad's whatever. beer. Exactly. My dad's beer. That's, exactly, that's what you said before. Okay. Whether you remember it or not, your, oh, your brain works the same exactly. way. Exactly. The synapses are firing. <laughs> it was a brand new thought, but, you know, it's not original. That's that's that's, that's what it means to be 48. It's cons- consist- consistency <laughs> through... Um, I don't know what that means. A- anyway, John lets us know that he actually thinks of it as a really impressive beer, so that's good to know. A twenty-something, because we I, wondered what the, the kids thought. Because we, we know we're, we're old men, we think it's great. But yeah, it is kind of crazy that I mean, I'm always on that lookout for the newest, latest. But I will still buy Sierra Nevada regularly because it's just it's amazing. Yeah. All right, the last one comes from uh, Tori Fitchett, and he uh, asked a, a question about a Heady Topper, which is one of these New England IPAs. Oh, yeah, this is a great question. Uh, and he said, I was surprised to see a can exhorting consumers to drink it uh, straight from the can. The simple version of my question is, are they right? And his question was kind of long, um, but uh, I, that, I think that's, that is the pithy part. And we'll yeah, but this, is, but this is a great question, and I actually have a, a bone to pick with you because – you're the kind of guy who'll pick up a bottle of beer and will drink straight from the bottle, which I, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, giving, it, I'm giving him an incredul- incredulous look. It's true. He is. Uh, <laughs> I used to be that guy when I was dumb and young. Uh, <laughs> and now I, all, if I can, I always, always, always decant. And the reason is simple, because I, I want to experience all of the beer. I want to see the color. I want to have, especially the aroma. Especially if it's an, if it's a really hop infused beer like Hetty Topper. Right. The aroma is so critical, and it's really hard to get aroma out of a small opening in a bottle or a can. And so, I always, when I can, I always decant. Well, it, 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 of course, that's the right way to go. It, but here's the thing: I I even had a post on Beerbana a while back that said I am not a beer geek. And the truth is, I'm not a beer geek. There are times when I just drink beer like everybody else, and I enjoy it. And if it's a beer that I'm really familiar with, if I'm drinking a Total Domination or something, somebody hands me that, or a mm-hmm. Mirror Pond, I'm not going to decant that beer. There's no reason for me to decant that beer. I know exactly what that beer tastes like. And drinking it out of the bottle is, uh, yeah, but just you know, because I'm in the backyard. Just because I'm, you know what it tastes like, don't you want to have the full experience of it each time? I'm having an experience of it. I'm just not having that experience. It's just the memory of it that's... The experience that I'm having is enjoying drinking that beer out of the bottle, which has its own kinds of virtues. It's not necessarily the most centrally oriented, but um, you're hanging out with your buds on the back porch, or in my case, it's a Wednesday night and we're rolling some dice in a nerdly way. Uh, the focus doesn't have to be uh, like a laser on the beer. The, the beer becomes a part of the tapestry of my experience, and so... Uh, I just enjoy drinking it out of a bottle sometimes. And, you know, I'm not going to do that with the purple. It's the first, beer, first time I ever had this beer, this kind of special beer. Mm-hmm. I would never do that with that kind of beer. But, hmm. um, no, I'm not backing off. And I will say to people, to people who will never drink a mass market lager, uh, I think you're also missing this experience of a beer. That beer has a perfect moment to drink uh, that you want you want a mass market lager, and if you if you think Shh. there are no opportunities, no that that beer is never the right beer to drink, I think maybe you're actually limiting yourself on the whole experience of everything. By the way, we almost made it to the end of the pod, but here comes the whichever. <laughs> ah, nice. At least uh, we made it close. I'm not entirely sure that I um <laughs> that I see the connection between dr- decanting a beer and all the way to mass market lagers. I will say that... Hey, man, it's my rant. Get out of the way. When I'm at a barbecue... You can only hope to get on. When I'm at a barbecue and there's, like, bottles of beer there, maybe there's a plastic cup, yeah, I'll drink from the bottle, and drinking from the bottle's kind of 
brings back memories of my youth. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but if I can, I'll always decant. Um, so uh, we agree to disagree. I think that if I can, I might as well experience all of the sensual experience of the beer that I can. The, so. Well, there you are. There you have it. Yep, I'm Gene Allworth's son, and by God, I'm going to drink some beers out of the bottle. That's how it's going to be. Maybe I just don't, just don't drink the beers you drink. Maybe that's it. Yeah, could be. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, so we, the, this whole but, rant, well, okay, but Hetty Topper, would yeah, you, would you, what do you Topper. think? Well, the reason um, there's a historical reason why Hetty Topper did this, and that was because Hetty is a really cloudy. It was the first kind of New right. England IPA. It's very cloudy. It's actually when it was made at the smaller brewery. I haven't actually had one that's been made at the more modern brewery. Uh-huh. Uh, it's it was chunky. It was not just cloudy. It was kind of <laughs> chunky, and it was really because it had these giant protein particulates floating it was really ugly right and they wanted to conceal that so that's why it's on the can it's been on the can ever since they they made it that way um but now of course but many now, people love that yeah so. now haziness is a virtue in its own right and you would say so now having heard this uh-huh. and knowing that let, let's see, let's imagine it still is as hideous as it's always been would you would you decant it now you've become you, you're already you've already declared yourself a decanting fundamentalist yes. so uh you decant it Despite its unsightly nature. Oh, yeah. No, and I, and the brewery's pro uh, exhortation that you not decant. <laughs> yes, I would ignore the brewery's exhortation. I don't care what they... And once I, <laughs> once I buy it, I'm the owner of the product. I'll do with it what I damn well please. <laughs> <laughs> Suckers. Uh, well done. Uh, I, I, I enjoy it. I, I like hazy beers i'm a home brewer too so you know even chunkiness i'll accept in my beer that's <laughs> i can chunks of things little flakes of little flakes of hops that's delightful i like that a lot so wait what is that is that a is that a fly's wing what is that <laughs> yeah well we do brew outside sometimes so there are that there's that but you know it's all part of the the protein content of the beer <laughs> um no i will i would i would definitely decant it and i would Absolutely. If it was the first time I was having a heady topper, absolutely. The first time, I still haven't had one. So mm-hmm. um, when I have a heady topper, I will decant it. All right. We should get a heady topper and drink. Uh, maybe for this, we'll try to get a heady topper for this this podcast. Because that was, I would say, the, it, I would not say it. It was definitely the first New England IPA. So it would be great to have that as yeah. one of those marker beers on the pod. Yeah. We should give it a shot. All right. Well, I guess it's time to close up the the mailbag, the fat, lovely mailbag. We love that. More and more like that, please. Yeah. Thanks so much uh, for your contributions. Please keep them up. Um, We have the beer Sherpa. Do you have a beer Sherpa this week? I'm going to go with uh, Edelbert, which is a brewery from Texas. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was tasting beers for my forthcoming um, classic beer column about West Mall Triple, and we taste other Mm -hmm. American versions of Triple um, as a part of that. And Edelbert's makes a, a wonderful triple uh, called Triple B. Mm-hmm. That it's funny. Uh, on the label, it said straw colored, and I poured it out, and it was amber. It was not quite as dark as this beer we're drinking, but it was close. It mm-hmm. was not straw colored. Um, so I don't know what that was all about. But otherwise, it was an exceptional beer. Um, it was quite sweet and um, full of, of uh, yeast esters, but it was balanced by uh, a very dry palate. And a really kind of strong phenolic clove note. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a perfect um, balancing act in the Belgian tradition. It's a, it, If you had that in a, in a uh, blind tasting with a bunch of other Belgian triples, you would never be able to pick it out. It seemed perfectly Belgian. Nice. I really I admired it a lot. So, yeah, way to go. Uh, Americans often 
do other do things that make their beers not taste like the place they come from. Yeah. That was a good example. So good. Buy a bottle of that if you're able to and uh, drink it. All right. Well, my beer Sherpa recommendation this week actually comes from you uh, because you know how much I like uh, hops and particularly how fond I am of uh, session IPAs. Yes. And so you said I should go out and find Fort George Overdub IPA, which took me a while. But the other day I finally found it in the store, Overdub, in a can, Yep. which I promptly decanted. Yep. Uh, That's a beer you'd have to decant. I, I would decant that. Yeah. Certainly, especially the first time. Um, uh, it is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to think of the right. Um, but what's what's so the trick with these new IPAs is that you you can get the really for me people have figured out how to get extract all of this amazing hop flavor and aroma without the bitterness. So we've gotten there. Mm-hmm. But now it's like, how do you figure out the malt? and the body behind it right and sometimes it's a little hit and miss sometimes it's a little thin um you're trying to go for low alcohol lower alcohol content anyway i thought that the flavor profile they got from the hops which is incredibly juicy lovely just rich saturated flavor and the balance from the malts at a whatever i don't even remember what the the um abv is but it's around four and a half to five right was just sublime just perfect and yeah i think it's 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 i think now the best example of a session IPA that I can think of. So it would definitely where I would recommend people to go. So that's Fort George. As I recommended it to you, Overdub IPA. I I, uh, of course agree. Yeah. Uh, So thank you. Thank (laughs) you. I agree with myself. Thank you for that recommendation. Uh, Great beer. It's a great beer and I hope to find more. I think you said that it might be a seasonal thing or or a one-off, but I hope that's not true. I don't know. It was weird when I was at the brewery last. Mm -hmm. uh, They had two session IPAs. They had another session IPA as their regular and mm-hmm. they had overdub and their their irregular. It wasn't mm-hmm. in their regular lineup and I, right. I was alarmed because their other session IPA is nowhere near as good. Yeah. Sorry Fort George, but it's true. Yeah. All right. Tough For, Fort George, here's here's my here's my plea. Make this a regular <laughs> beer, please. Totally. Send it send lots of it to Portland and uh, I will be a happy man. All right. Well, with that, we bring this pod to a conclusion, but not before we uh, remind you that Birvana is brought to you by Guinness. No matter which style of beer is your go-to, there's a Guinness for you to enjoy. All right. And by All About Beer magazine since 1979. Award-winning beer and brewery news, reviews, and insight in print and online. Subscribe today at allaboutbeer.com slash subscribe. All right, a few words uh, going out about how to contact us. Jeff blogs at Beervana and at All About Beer. He tweets at Beervana. And, of course, there's the Beervana Beervana blog Facebook page, which is the best way to get in touch. Um, And Patrick blogs at Beeronomics, not Beervana, Beeronomics, and also tweets at Beeronomics. So look for him there. Yeah, so go to the Facebook page if you want to get in touch, or you can email at the underscore beeraxe at yahoo.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us your questions, comments, anything. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Suggestions for shows. We're going to go with Mason's. So right there, that's already a winner. That's right. Send us more. Yeah, thank goodness, because without, without <laughs> suggestion, we wouldn't know what to do next. That's right. All right, uh, so let's see. I'm going to pick up the purple, which uh, is the wild ale. I do want to say one other thing. Last time we said that we were going to be talking this time with Todd, Tom Shellhammer, uh, hops researcher at Cor- in Corvallis. Oh, yeah, but then the snowpocalypse came. And we could not do it. We're going to reschedule that and look for that down the road. Yeah, all right. Once, once, once 
Once we uh, shovel out of this the snowpocket, we had nearly an inch. Yeah, which is shut the city down. Shut they, the city they down. They really shut the city down. But you know, I okay. So we're about to cheers. And, and <laughs> but as an economist, I get so frustrated with people who are like, oh, that's ridiculous. That we. I mean, do you really want to spend all the money for the snow clearing equipment for the one time it snows so that we can actually get by? So fine, one a couple days, we have a little bit of snow. We shut down. That's that's optimal. I'm with you, but it, it but it, it will surprise people who have seen actual snow it and uh, yeah. see how a city can be. Turns crippled. out that we rarely get snow, so we don't have the equipment for it. So when it snows, you just gotta hunker down. And a lot of the people who live here have never driven in snow, so they're in yeah. So I know that's what <laughs> that's what my wife my wife says. Oh, you grew up in Wisconsin, you're not driving the snow. I said it's not. I'm not the problem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I can get my car down the street. It's everybody else. I don't know that I can avoid. It's a guy who's perpendicular in the middle of the road. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, so did you, Jeff. Uh, cheers, Patrick. We'll see you next time.